This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited for today's guest. Uh, we have we have we are we are plumbing new depths of of wonkery this week between Paul Bloom and now our guest today, um, um, uh, who's a first timer, I should say, um, though I have been a fan of his stuff for quite a while. Uh, we have on today a senior fellow from the Manhattan Institute, James Meggs. Um, he's a contributing editor of City Journal. Uh, he also co-hosts a podcast called How Do We Fix It and writes uh, the tech commentary column for Commentary Magazine. Um, before that, he was, uh, were you editor, co-editor, Popular Mechanics? I was, I was, I was the editor-in-chief of Popular Mechanics, yeah. Um, and uh, so we're, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on was we have a lot of listeners who want us to talk more about nuclear power. Um, let's start with... Uh, like, how did you go from popular mechanics to the world of wonkery? Yeah, well, popular mechanics is sort of the ultimate uh, wonky job across a whole wide array of topics. I mean, it's a, the in arguably the biggest science tech magazine around, one that had been around more than 100 years when I got there. And it needed some, let's just say it needed some repairs. It needed some updating. But what a fun time to run a technology magazine. I mean, we interviewed Elon Musk when SpaceX was still a very shaky uh, proposition and, and he was just getting involved with Tesla. We covered, you know, everything from environmental breakthroughs and, and clean tech to, you know, how to install a dishwasher and do stuff around your house. And what was so fun about it is the kind of person who, you know, if he buys a dishwasher, thinks, yeah, I, I should install that myself. I, I'm not going to call a guy just to do this pretty basic job. He's also interested in, you know, the designs for new rocket engines or what went, what's, you know, why they had to retire the space shuttle and should have done it sooner. And, you know, the, the pe people who love technology and have a hands-on spirit are, are curious about a lot of things. And that kind of fit me. I'm not, I don't have a super technical background. I'm a journalist who's just really curious about everything, but I'm definitely the kind of person who grew up reading, you know, popular science and popular mechanics and just constantly curious about how the world works. So are you a Mr. Fix-It guy? Uh, to some extent. Again, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to come and rewire your house, <laughs> you know, but, but I'm, but I always feel a little bad if I do have to, you know, call somebody to do something a uh, basic around the house. So yeah, I like to, I like to tinker with stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I am not a tinkerer. I would like to be a tinkerer. So like I have, I have tinkerer envy. Um, uh, but I'm closer. It was a great, um, eulogy for Alan Bloom once where someone, I think it was Clifford Orwin who said of Alan Bloom, things were not his friend. <laughs> what he meant by this, just just not good at stuff you know and i'm I'm not there like I can, I can do some technical computer stuff okay and um and i can do process of elimination for cable and these kinds of things okay but beyond that like electricity kind of does scare me um, well it should <laughs> yeah <laughs> electricity can be scary stuff so uh Let's start, I guess, we'll, we'll, because I don't want to bait and switch anybody. Let's start with the nuclear power stuff. Um, um, where are we right now on nuclear power? Do you think, are you heartened as someone who is, is pro the use of nuclear power safely and all that? Um, are you heartened by the rumblings of about turns in Germany and elsewhere? 
I'm I'm very heartened by what's going on around the world uh, in terms of a revival of I would say it's a return of realism about nuclear power. The the idea that everybody has been turning their economies inside out trying to go all renewables and Germany's the world's leading example of this. And well renewables have their place and their prices are coming down in some ways they're still really difficult to integrate into a into the power grid because of the wild swings in output meanwhile we've got this technology that's completely carbon free you build a reactor and it can run for 50 60 70 years safely and crank out a huge amount of power 24/7 there's no other energy source that's as depend, dependable as as nuclear and it does it all on a tiny footprint, you know, a hundred acres or so, you know, just a, a relatively small plot of land that uh, and can and can do that for for decades. So it's great that we're coming back around to recognizing the value of nuclear power. I think a lot of realists have put aside some of the concerns, some of which, you know, the concerns about nuclear power were understandable, but once you do the, take the time to research a little more deeply, you see that the, the idea of the risks were wildly overblown and the risks of other power sources were, were underappreciated. So I, I'm, I'm really encouraged to see everything that's happening. France is building new power plants. Germany, after closing down most of their, they had some of the best nuclear plants in the world. They closed almost all of them down as part of their their green energy program. So basically it meant they were running in place while they were building wind turbines, they're shutting down carbon-free power. Finally, with their backs to the wall, they're recognizing they have a problem, but the Green Party still fights uh, keeping their last couple of nuclear plants open. And, but in, in around much of the rest of the world, and certainly around much of Europe, there is a kind of a new dawn of, of nuclear power. There's also plants being built in China and the Middle East and other and other places. So that's all good. In the U.S., we also have a lot of progress. We have bipartisan support for nuclear power. It's probably one of the only areas where you can get Democrats and Republicans on the same page. But there are still some significant obstacles, and those mostly come in the regulatory space. So every time I look into nuclear power, which is usually in response to some crazy, some I shouldn't say crazy, legitimate controversy like Fukushima or whatever. Um, I actually went out and did and visited Yucca Mountain back when it was still possible. Um, but everyone always says the next generation of nuclear reactors is going to be so much better, so much safer, pebble bed, all that kind of stuff. Is it? Is it like you know? For fifty years, people been talking about Brazil as the country of the future, um, and it just we never quite get there. Are these new, what, what are the new reactors, like if we could build them, what, what makes them different? What makes them safer? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, first of all, the ones we have are perfectly safe, but they're, but it's like a 747, you know, it's a really great practical workhorse of a design, but it's an old design and we can do better uh, with, with newer technology and new designs. The key to most of the new, the next generation reactors is that the reactors are a lot smaller. Instead of building a giant reactor that's going to put out 1,000 or, or 1,300 megawatts, building it on location, which is a very technically difficult operation, you build a much smaller one in a factory. You turn them out much more quickly because you're working in a factory and, and you're making many of them in, instead of you know taking years to build one. You can iterate a lot more quickly. You can improve the designs. You can improve the tolerances. Then you deliver these reactors by barge or rail to, to the site where they're going to be used, and you kind of bolt them together. You know, they might come in a few pieces. And then at a plant, instead of having one or two big reactors, you, can, you might install a half dozen much smaller ones. And the, the, what makes these reactors safer and again, you know, the ones we have are perfectly safe. But what makes these uh, easier to run and, and maybe, you know, less worrisome is that unlike Fukushima or unlike Three Mile Island, they don't require electricity to pump cold water into the core if something goes wrong. That's always your fear with a reactor is if, if it loses coolant, 
and that that nuclear fuel gets too hot, then everything starts to melt and you have a big mess. The uh, you know, it's not the China syndrome of the old movie, but it's it's a big problem. So these reactors are designed so that if anything goes wrong with the system, the reactor just turns itself off. The, the operator could literally walk away and the reactor just turns itself off. And because they're not that big, they don't have that much heat inside of them and they just cool off on their own. They don't they 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 can use convection, gravity to keep water flowing if they do require water to cool them. And then they just, they can just sit there. And so that's that's a nice advantage. It's both simpler to operate and and safer if something goes wrong. What I'm describing right now is the type that's usually called a small modular reactor. And these are essentially scaled down versions of the nuclear reactors that that uh, we use today that that use water to move heat out of the reactor and then use that water to make steam, drive turbines and make your electric power. There's another uh, type that is coming down the path that some people call advanced reactors. The terminology is a little a, a, a little squishy, but the advanced reactors are include things like the pebble bed reactor that you mentioned. These are based on research that the U.S. Department of Energy or, 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 its, or its predecessors have done going back really almost to the 1950s in new types of fuel, new types of cooling systems. Some of them would use molten sodium salt to, um, to carry the heat out of the reactor. Others use high temperature gas like helium. So uh, these sound really cutting edge, but in fact, the U.S. government built reactors that worked this way back in the 1960s. They tested them really thoroughly. We know a lot about these, these systems. Now, finally, we're at a place where, where a whole host of really interesting startup companies are designing these reactors, and they're actually moving toward implementation. So, so yes, to answer your question, we are on the verge of building these reactors in a number of places around the country. And uh, the Department of Energy has actually been very supportive of this. The Biden administration deserves some credit. They've been really quite supportive of nuclear power. So was the Trump administration. As I said, it's a, there's a real bipartisan support here. So we're, nuclear fans are really optimistic that we're kind of on the threshold of, of a whole new wave of plants being built. But we're also nervous because we have the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that is, I don't think they would say they're standing in the way, but their processes for approvals are so complicated, so arduous, they take so long that I'm really quite concerned that by the time these reactors get built, so much time will have gone by that then their economics don't look as good as they, they would if we could just build them right away. So uh, one technical question. You say that the China syndrome is no longer necessarily a threat, but what about the Pepsi syndrome? The, the what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's an old Saturday Night Live skit um, where Jimmy Carter visits a nuclear power plant and um, spills Pepsi on the control oh, panel yes. <laughs> and then um, yes. turns into a, a 50 foot tall uh, Dan Aykroyd. Plant well, you, you know, I mean, the funny thing about all high technology is when things go wrong, it often starts with something like that. You know, the simplest little thing. One nuclear plant land had to be shut down one time when mice chewed through some wires. I mean, nothing went wrong. It was fine. But it just shows you that you have to you, that you have to be ready for a wide range of eventualities. Well, you bring up mice. So I had a I, I'm kind of fascinated by the problem of urban rats. And I had a rat guy on the podcast a little while ago. And he claims you know, and he's not some outlandish guy. Uh, he claims that something like 20% of urban fires can be attributable in one way or another to rats uh, because they build nets near warm transformers. They chew through wires to get, you know, the insulation and whatnot. Um, and uh, um, and yet no one talks about, you know, the, the economic necessity of, of eradicating the, the rodent menace. Anyway, I don't, you don't, you don't need to opine deeply on, on the rodent menace unless you want to. Uh, you did run a magazine that was constantly on the lookout for better mousetraps. So maybe, you know, whatever. But um, so we all talk about the carbon intensity of things, right? You know, how much and like I, I, I still feel I haven't done a deep dive on this. I still suspect that solar and wind are much more carbon intensive than we're being told because of the, the expense of, of, 
of building the damn things of of what goes into making batteries which are re really kind of hideous um and we don't talk very much about the energy intensity of things and so i've, I've seen arguments on both sides of this that that you know so energy intensity is the amount of you know better than i do but just for listeners sake it's the amount of energy you have to put into something to get energy out of it right and so the energy intensity of wind and solar is not all that impressive. The energy intensity of, of oil and gas is really impressive because there's just so much energy in the carbon molecules. Um, where do, how does nuclear compare on the, the sort of energy intensity question? Um, or, or am I wrong? And also, am I wrong about the, the carbon intensity stuff about the wind and solar? Yeah, so first the wind and solar issue. There's a whole study in this field of, of, you know, a life cycle analysis. If you include the mining, the shipping, the refining, how much energy is involved in building a wind turbine compared to the amount of energy it produces over its lifetime. And I'm not 100% confident in any of those analyses, but they, they indicate, as you say, that, that once you analyze the full footprint, it's, it's not as good as people think. There's another element to this. People often measure wind and solar in terms of how efficient they are when they're operating. But, but they only, they're only, you know, in a lot of the country, uh, solar panels are only producing a, a decent amount of power about 20% of the time. Wind turbines, maybe 30% of the time, depending on where they are. If the wind blows too, too hard, you have to turn them off. If it doesn't blow hard enough, they don't work. And so, if you think about it, you imagine you built a car and you had, and somebody said, I've got this amazing power source. When it's working, it's going to give you virtually free power. And you say, okay, great. But, uh, but it doesn't, it only works part of the time. So I've got this other power source, <laughs> you know, this wind power source that gives you almost free power when it's working, but, but it doesn't work all the time. And I can't tell you when it's going to work. So you're going to need a gas motor too. You're going to need three different energy sources, uh, and and half the time you're going to have too much power, and then sometimes you you're only going to have your gas engine. So each one of these things has to be, in a sense, overbuilt. And you can imagine how expensive a car would be, you know, if it ran like that. That's kind of what we're doing with our power grid. It's an oversimplification, but but we, you've got solar that comes on and produces a ton of power for a little while, then turns off very quickly when the sun goes down. You've got wind that comes and goes unpredictably. It always seems to not be there when you need it most, like during that cold snap in Texas in 2021, when, uh, when you know, there was all the different power systems were struggling. And they have a lot of wind in Texas, but it just happened not to be blowing during that week of that, that cold snap. So, so we, you have to overbuild all this stuff. So you can't just say how much... Uh, energy goes into building those solar panels, you have to say, we're going to have to build two or three times more stuff to run our power grid on mostly on wind and solar, precisely because they don't operate all the time. You're going to need to build more power lines. If you're going to, if it's sunny in Arizona, but cloudy in Ohio, and you want to move power all the way from Arizona to Ohio, you know, you're going to need a massive, massive investment in, in power lines. So all of those sources are not as efficient as they could be. And, you know, not to say they don't have a role or they don't work well when they work, but, but managing them is hard. Contrast that with a nuclear plant. You turn it on and it runs for, you know, a couple of years at a time between refuelings the refuelings are very predictable. You shut the plant down for a few weeks, you refuel it, you turn it back on. And it does this, you, you, there's this question of the energy that goes into building it, but there's also the energy of the, the energy density of the fuel itself. And, you know, it's orders and orders of magnitude. If you, if you powered your life entirely with nuclear power, uh, all your electricity with nuclear power in your lifetime, the spent fuel from that process would roughly fill a Coke can. You know, if you, if you powered your life, if you tried to run your life on wind and solar, you need hundreds of acres of, of, you know, solar panels and turbines. If it was coal, you would need, you would need hundreds of train cars of coal, you know, in your lifetime and, and a huge amount of 
of waste and stuff left over in the end. So the the uh, the energy density of of nuclear is a huge huge advantage, and it's a and it's an issue that's often, I think, a lot of times the renewable fans, the the, the serious ones are serious about it, but I think a lot of people just assume that we're going to build a lot of wind and solar panels, and they they don't appreciate how little power they actually put out on an acre by acre basis. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, again, that's, it seems to me, because I, I, I remember getting to these arguments about the amount of subsidies that go into oil and gas versus go into whatever, uh, going to wind and solar, and the environmentalists would all say, look at it, you know, look at the amount of money that goes into oil and gas. And that's a perfectly fair point about why you would subsidize an industry that's profitable and you can have legitimate, you know, arguments about that. But what they would never look at is that per unit of energy produced, the chart goes completely inverted, right? And so, yeah, in absolute terms, oil and gas was getting more money, but then you look and, and wind and solar was getting very little. But then if you look at like how much each unit of energy costs, it was pennies on the dollar, if that, from the subsidies for oil and gas compared to the uh, amount of subsidies you give for, 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 for wind and solar. And it just seems, it seems like, a, I mean, I, I, I don't like, I don't aesthetically, I don't like either. I really don't. I'm a big cross country driver. I, I, I think the windmills are kind of hideous. I like charismatic megafauna, like birds of prey and, and raptors and all that kind of stuff. And it kills a lot of them. Um, there's this whale stuff. But it feels like it's a vanity project in in many of the instances that it's in. Where you know, where do you think, other than supremely windy places, um, uh, or personal solar panels on homes, where are the best arguments on a pure efficiency basis for the the big wind and solar stuff to your light by your lights? Yeah. Well, the best argument, the the best locations, as you say, you know, West Texas. Uh, the Western Plains where the winds blow steady. What's interesting about those places is they have low populations. So once you commit to wind, you're, you're basically saying, let's build our power generation about as far from the population centers as possible. And then let's build thousands and thousands of miles of, of uh, transmission lines to move that power much farther than we typically do this is the heart of one of the one of the reasons that the Biden administration has you know passed both the infrastructure bill and the uh, in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act is to fund stuff like those power lines. I'm dubious those lines are going to get built. We seem to have trouble building much of any major infrastructure these days due to all the delays and problems with permitting. Uh, Senator Manchin tried to come up with a solution to these permitting delays. It didn't really fly, but this is a major issue we're going to have to confront. But I say, okay, instead of trying to build, I mean, even if those wind, those wind turbines, again, they, they, they can produce really cheap energy when they're working. But how about taking some of these coal plants we've been shutting down that are located close to where the power is needed? They're already hooked up to the power grid. Well, how about putting some of these small modular reactors there where they would, you know, you put four or eight little reactors uh, in one of these coal plants or someplace where nuclear plants are retired, like on the Hudson Valley where I live. And, you know, it's not just plug and play, but it's pretty close to that compared to, to saying like, we're going to build a giant wind farm and then build thousands of miles of power lines to move the power around. And by the way, those are going to turn on and off unpredictably. So you're going to have to build a whole different power system as a backup for when the wind's not blowing. That doesn't seem like the easiest or most sensible approach to me. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have 
unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I'm going to ask it this way. Um, I've always had this sort of mild fantasy uh, about how we could build nuclear solar things on the moon or in space. And once we figure out that whole beaming microwave energy back to the surface thing, um, get our energy that way. I, I realized there were some technical issues. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but so what are, if you, what are your fantasy energy products other than fusion, which I think sort of satisfies everybody's, you know, hopes and dreams. Um, if you were, if you could run a R and D fund for the federal government to put X amount of money in that you knew you had a, a high sense of confidence would probably pay off. What are, what are sort of the, the, the dorky things that you would, um, emphasize? Do you want to like, uh, you know, uh, put a hydroelectric dam in front of the Straits of Gibraltar. I know that's one of those things that the engineers love the idea of. Um, uh, which ones like tickle your funny bone or your fancy? Yeah. Well, well, first of all, on this idea of collecting energy out in space and then beaming it to Earth, you know, it's still pretty hard to build stuff in space. And uh, I, I interviewed Elon Musk a few years ago and asked him about this. And he was just blistering on what a dumb idea he thinks it is to to build power stations in space and try to beam the energy down to earth in terms of its inefficiency. If I was king of the world and you know was going to implement my own industrial policy, I, the answer is right here. I mean, yeah, we could we could look at next generation things. Fusion clearly if and when that materializes in a usable way, that'll be fantastic, world-changing, absolutely world-changing. But we have fission, nuclear fission right now. It works really well. I, I read a great article one time when somebody said, you know, if, we invented, if we'd invented nuclear fission like right now or 10 years ago, everybody would be falling all over themselves saying, Eureka, this is amazing. <laughs> We've got this common material that, that's not that hard to mine, that we need so little of it compared to oil or coal or anything else. And, and it produces this tons and tons of, of carbon-free power. This is it. This is our solution. Let's go. And yet we haven't done that. It shows how much policy in our world is really not 
sensible. So rather than chasing some pipe dream of a of a future energy source or, you know, massive batteries that can store weeks worth of power and, and recycle it back into the grid. How about we just we we invest in a technology we know works and we have a lot of experience in it. And I, a little bit of good news on the energy front is that the Biden administration has, you know, following the Trump and to some extent the Obama administration, has invested a lot in nuclear power research. And you, you mentioned how wind and solar get these massive subsidies. Everybody thinks we subsidize oil and gas so much. By one estimate, uh, uh, solar was for a long time was getting per kilowatt hour about 250 times more subsidies than than really the fairly modest subsidies that go to oil and gas. But uh, how about just less subsidies? How about <laughs> how about we lower the market barriers, lower the regulatory barriers, and and stop trying to push the market in all these crazy directions and and let nuclear power compete on a level playing field. You know, I, I'm kind of glad that they're subsidizing some of these early plants. They're investing some money in building a couple of these advanced reactors and small modular reactor plants. But I don't want a nuclear industry that's constantly dependent on big government handouts to survive. I want a nuclear industry that's, that is entrepreneurial and, and lean and, and able to compete. And I think it, it could but the problems in the way are more regulatory. So I'm, I'm less invested in, in future technologies. And no, I don't want to put the hydro dam across the Straits of Gibraltar or the mouth of the New York Harbor or, you know, pretty much <laughs> or the Bay of Fundy. No, I, I think that would cause more problems than it solves. Um, yeah, I mean, like the the argument you always hear from opponents of nuclear power plants is that they're so expensive. The main reason for that is the regulatory issues that you're you're talking about, but I also have I have a certain amount of exhaustion with that argument from people who do not care about the costs of any other energy thing, right? I mean, like they're they're perfectly willing to subsidize through the teeth wind and solar and all these other things and electric cars and they like budgetary discipline is not something they invoke except for the one energy policy that they don't like. And then all of a sudden they get all green eye shade about it. You know, like Bernie Sanders says, oh, nuclear power is too expensive. Really? Bernie Sanders really cares about like, you know, uh, uh, husbanding the resources of the federal government in a responsible way. Um, all right. So the last thing on the nuclear thing, just because I know I'll get email from people saying, why didn't you ask about it? What do you say to people about the problem of nuclear waste? Yes. I recently visited what people would consider a nuclear waste facility. Uh, uh, due to the uh, wisdom and political conniving of our former governor, Andrew Cuomo, our big, beautiful Indian Point nuclear plant uh, on the Hudson River, about 30 miles north of New York City, shut down in 2021. And of course, that meant that our consumption of natural gas and our carbon emissions shot up dramatically. This is part of a supposed green policy. But the what's interesting there to me is all of the fuel that plant is used is stored on site in what are called dry casks. After the fuel comes out of a reactor, first it goes into a kind of a swimming pool for a few years. It loses a lot of its heat and, and radioactivity. And then you can take those rods out and store them in these big steel drums that are surrounded by reinforced concrete. It looks, if you can imagine, kind of a squat farm silo. That's what it looks like. So I you know, sat on the pad with all these these dry casks and, you know, leaned up against them. And it's a it's a it's about as safe a way of storing spent nuclear fuel, as you can imagine. The Yucca Mount, Mountain you mentioned was a uh, the, the U.S. government passed a, a, a bill requiring the DOE to establish a uh, an underground or a, a safe storage facility. And they were they spent billions developing this facility, Yucca Mountain in Nevada, which I'm sure you talked to your listeners about how it got shut down basically by Harry Reid and Obama's unwillingness to to really fight to to <laughs> to 
make sure that the will of the people was followed and this national facility was set up. So now we just store the fuel, the spent fuel on the sites of nuclear plants around the country. I think there's about 70 facilities that have uh, spent fuel on them, maybe a little bit less than that. It's not a great option, except the more you look at it, it's actually fine. Uh, these facilities are all guarded. They're safe. Nobody's going to drive up at the truck and steal one of these ta- these casts. They weigh they weigh way too much to to cart away. They've you could shoot grenades at them, try to bomb them. There's just really not much of a risk with this. Is it a solution that'll work for thousands of years? No, but we're a smart civilization. We'll we'll deal with it. The thing to remember is there's so little of this spent fuel. uh, The Department of Energy always says, if you took all the fuel rods from all the plants that have made electric power in this country through our history and stacked them on a football field, they would stack up about 30 feet deep. So it's not that much. And, uh, And so, yes, it needs to be managed. Would it be nice to have a national facility? Yeah, eventually. But the system we have right now is fine. And the really interesting thing is some of these next generation reactors are set up that they can actually use spent fuel. Most of the energy in that fuel is not fully extracted uh, in, in a conventional nuclear power plant. So you could take those old fuel rods, reprocess them and use that fuel again. So instead of looking at these as, you know, nuclear waste dumps, we should look at them as repositories of clean energy. We could stop mining uranium tomorrow, just use the, the, the energy that is embedded in those spent fuel rods at plants around the country, and we could power our country for something like 100 years. Um, yeah, I remember when Yucca was still alive proposition, one of the rules, I can't remember if it was from the, from the judge overseeing the case or just the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, but um, one of the rulings against Yucca for a while was that it violated the requirement that this stuff be guaranteed safe for at least 10,000 yeah. years. And it's just like, look, I, I'm all in favor of long-term planning, but the idea that our civilization, either our civilization won't exist, so then who gives a rat's ass, or, um, but the idea that in 200 years, we won't have figured out a way how to neuter, or neutralize nuclear waste um, and, you know, or put it into the engine of our DeLorean and go back in time is so silly. And so the, this, the, the 10,000 year thing was really just an arbitrary rule to say, you can't do this more than anything. Else. Absolutely. And it, it fits in with a lot of the anti-nuclear activists who they exaggerate the hazards of radiation, especially the hazards of very, very low levels of radiation. Uh, and they assume that, you know, if even the lowest conceivable levels of radiation, I mean, much less than you would get just from spending a day in Denver, say, where you get a little more solar mm-hmm. radiation, uh, that we have to assume that those are going to cause all these cases of cancer and stuff. The evidence for that is non-existent. In fact, quite to the contrary, it doesn't, they really can't find harm from very low levels of radiation at all. So, and yet this has been this kind of, catastrophism has been the, the, the backbone of the anti-nuclear movement, even among groups like the, the Union of Concerned Scientists, who, you know, who are always mm-hmm. find something to be concerned about. And they never want to balance these minuscule risks against the massive benefits of a, of a source of power that means no more pollution going up the smokestacks of coal-fired power plants, which, guess what? Along with sodium dioxide and ash and a million other bad things also (laughs) release radiation into the atmosphere. So, so, you know, it's one of those best is the enemy, the good uh, problems. And I think it's, it's almost a mystical, almost a, uh, a religious fear of nuclear power that goes way beyond any practical concern. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, but if you read psychologists like Jonathan Haidt and stuff, it's a little understandable. It's wrong because there are lots of things that come from our primitive wiring that are wrong, like, you know, rape. Um, but, uh, um, the, the fear of unseen contagion is something that really pings part of our lizard brain. And I get it. 
but at the same time, I'm not the one calling climate change an existential threat or an extinction level threat. And if you honestly and sincerely believe that climate change is an extinction level event, which no serious climate scientist says, right? Um, uh, you know, the UN, you know, IPCC doesn't say that. This is, but Bernie Sanders says it, Elizabeth Warren says it, Joe Biden says it, you know, this extinction level threat. The idea that you wouldn't risk using nuclear power, despite all these things that the concern, you need to concern scientists who are a total alarmist on climate change, say all the time. I mean, the analogy I always use, which annoys some, some readers and listeners because I use it a lot, is if there was a asteroid heading towards planet Earth that had 100% likelihood of being a planet killer if it reached us, and a bunch of scientists said our best option is to send a bunch of nuclear weapons into space at it at a great enough distance to nudge it out of the way and, you know, all the movie plots and whatnot. The contempt people would have for the people saying, well, you know, there's such a moral hazard of using nuclear weapons as a tool. And, you know, is that really the kind of society we want to live in? And what about the possibility of it raining back down in the app? I mean, like all of these kinds of things, which are things to be concerned about, but they are not arguments against letting the asteroid destroying the planet. And yet the rhetoric of the, the people most concerned, I mean, the, the Venn diagram of people who are most alarmist about global warming are also the people most opposed to one of the only like usable solutions to carbon emissions. And it, it, it makes it very difficult for me to take a lot of them too seriously. Yeah, absolutely. The good news is for at least 10 or so years, there's been this growing movement of environmentalists who are concerned about climate and, and do take nuclear power seriously. Stuart Brand, the legendary founder of the Whole Earth Catalog is one. Uh, uh, many others, there's this whole movement known as eco-modernism that takes a really hard-headed kind of technocratic look at, at environmental problems and challenges a lot of fuzzy uh, environmentalism. This movement is really gaining steam. And the very fact that the Biden administration is, is really quite supportive of nuclear power is, is, is positive. Uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, certainly someone no, most conservatives aren't a big fan of, but she's been pretty strong on trying to get, they, they had a, a, a nuclear plant that shut down last year. She's been fighting to get that plant reopened. So that would be a real first in this country if that happens. So there are some 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 bright spots here and and I so I'm I'm guardedly optimistic but we've got to clear these hurdles if we can't build a highway or a subway tunnel in this country we're not going to be able to build all these nuclear plants or all the power lines and wind turbines that some people want and so we we've got to solve that problem we've got to we've got to remove these hurdles to get in anything done um, I'm not going to go off on my demosclerosis, uh, rants, but I agree with you about the problems of the, of the sort of the, the, the sclerotic nature of the regulatory state and the legal you know, environment. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, at some point I got to do a whole show about AI. I've been sort of putting it off for various reasons. Um, partly because chat GPT keeps telling me to. Um, but, uh, um, where do you stand uh, if, if Jim Pethokoukis is a 10 and it's unicorns and rainbows for as far as the eye can see, um, where do you stand, uh, between our, so if 10 is, is it's all upside and zero is I for one can be useful in the AI salt mines. Um, where do you come in on, on the AI thing? Yeah, that's, that's, it's hard to come up with a number. I'd say maybe a six, uh, I think. Uh, AI will will create all kinds of efficiencies across many different industries, and including in our in our personal lives. This, the new version of ChatGPT, uh, ChatGPT four, uh, is just coming out. I've got an email. Uh, I, I need to sign up and get on the waiting list to be one of the people who tries it out. I haven't done it yet, but we're seeing a system that could help you edit video more easily, that it could help you, you know, point your phone at, at, 
at things and have them identified. You know, Google already does this using AI to some degree. I mean, if you're in, you, you know, you say you're into like birds and charismatic megafauna. Well, you can be out in the woods and just point your phone at tree bark and and identify what kind of tree it is. That's pretty cool stuff. So there's a lot of there's a lot that could improve. It could improve a lot of medical care. I I saw a great demonstration where a doctor showed how he uses ChatGPT just to send emails to the insurance company saying, will you please cover this CAT scan or whatever I need for this patient? And instead of spending 20 minutes writing it himself, ChatGPT writes emails, cites the academic literature. You know, I'd rather have my doctor spending time talking to patients and not writing emails to insurance companies. So we're going to see a lot of little things like that. So that's all good. Will it disrupt jobs? This is always the, you know, ever since the invention of the automated loom, you know, this has been the, the dilemma. Every time a new technology comes along, it's like it's going to replace, it's going to replace workers. Well, this will, and, it'll re- and it will replace workers in higher status in industries than before. We used to worry about, you know, technology replacing you know, field hands or factory workers, which it did. Uh, but I don't think too many people are longing for the day of, of you know, pulling a plow behind a, a mule or working on a noisy assembly line. So as long as other good jobs emerge that replace those, most of us accept that's a good thing. I think that will happen here too. But sometimes these transitions happen really quickly and they are disruptive. And I think that's possible here. You know, it, it might be like if you're, say, a general practice um, uh, attorney and, you know, like a small town lawyer who handles all kinds of different things. Well, AI is going to make a lot of that work. It's either either you're going to you say, well, I could be much more efficient. I could handle 10 times more clients because it'll take less time to do all the work. Or you could say we need we'll need 10 times fewer of these lawyers. Well, maybe fewer lawyers wouldn't be the worst thing. But but people will be. Just like journalists have done in my field, our field, people will have to find new ways to make a living. Things will change and it will be disruptive in some ways. I think in the long run, it'll it'll make our society smarter, run smoother. But there, you know, but I, I do think there are there are issues we need to grapple with. So I just said, as I mentioned earlier, I had just had Paul Bloom on. Uh, by the time people hear this, they'll have heard that. Um, and he has a new book out, just doing the uh, doing a survey of what psychologists actually know and think they know and actually don't know. And um, and we talk, and I asked him. It's a question I always like to ask people who are big in a specific, specific field. What are the questions that are really dividing people in your field? Like what what is a topic that you try to avoid at a dinner party because you just know it's going to start an argument? And part of his answer was this: the AI thing. Because, and not so much about what it will do to society and all that, but whether it will confirm one theory of the mind versus another theory of the mind. And um, one theory of the mind is that that basically our human brains are just statistical association machines, and consciousness emerges from that, like an emergent property. Um, I, I, and if I'm butchering Paul's ver- ex- explanation, of this I apologize. Um, but I, I bring it up because I've been thinking about it a bit. Do you, do you have a, a position on whether sentience is coming sooner than maybe we're ready for when it comes to um, AI? Um, or do you think that's still a long way off and it's not going to come at all? Or, or will we know? I mean, you know, at a certain point, there's, of course, the, the you know, the, the famous uh, Turing test. If if you can't tell you're talking to a computer, would you define that computer as having intelligence? Mm-hmm. And ChatGPT is really, in many ways, you could say it's a system optimized to to sound like it knows what it's talking about, when in fact, it is merely kind of scanning this massive database of of previous things that humans have written and trying to imitate as best it can what a human would probably say. And, you know, so that's not intelligence. I don't know if it will ever achieve that, but and maybe at some level, will it matter? If let's say you took a, a, an AI system, it's very, very advanced and does things, it does a very, very accurate 
kind of imitation of what a human would do or how a human would answer a question, or maybe, you know, how a human would fly a plane or do all kinds of things. And the question of whether or not it's sentient or has will may be almost a trivial question if we give that computer system all the tasks we would give a human. I, I think that the idea of sentient scares us because, you know, 2001, Terminator, is it going to get sentient and decide to kill us all? Uh, and I, I don't think that's a completely trivial risk. I think we should think about that. <laughs> but but maybe it won't even matter because we're, we will be assigning these systems, you know, all, all the tasks that we normally take on. So whether they are thinking of themselves, having, are self-aware, they'll be able to pretend like they're self-aware because people are self-aware. They're going to imitate how people talk and how people act. So uh, that distinction may become uh, almost impossible to discern at some point. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Sh- I mean, again, like with, this is one of these things where like everyone should have humility about what they think about it because new data is coming in all the time and all that. So I'm not sure I agree with that and I'm not sure I disagree with that. Um, um, I do think it, it kind of, it matters in part because what people will make of it. Um, I don't, I, I assume just from the circles you come from that you read the Dune novels, uh, but I don't want to cast aspersions. Uh, the, the, the Butlerian Jihad thing um, feels so much more plausible than it did five years ago, right? Where all of a sudden you have artificial and the possibility that what they called thinking machines um, could overreal, overrule human decision-making on matters of life and death and that kind of thing. And, um, and so the Butlerian Jihad was AI forced a woman to have an abortion and people went nuts. Right. And now I'm not saying that that exact scenario is in the cards or anything, but the capacity for human beings to respond in unpredictable and not entirely thought through manner on some of these issues is just one of the many kind of wild cards on this. And also I've always been more persuaded by, you know, it was that guy who wrote, I think he's at Oxford who wrote the, the, the short book on AI and the paperclip, the paperclip theory. Yeah. The paperclip, the, yeah. The pin right, manufacturer yeah. or whatever, right. Where like you tell the AI machine maximize the efficiency of making paperclips. And so if you don't give it the right, uh, ethical controls, it's like, okay, well, let's bulldoze this hospital because this is the best site for distribution of paperclips or whatever. And you could see something like that happen. That, again, implausible in the near future, but like a much more worthwhile thing to talk about than it was five years ago. So, you know, you asked about my optimism and pessimism, and I'm kind of in the middle on that scale. The part, the thing that makes me pessimist, pessimistic is sort of twofold. One part is that I worry about giving even more power to the small class of people who control these systems. You know, we've learned so much about the way that Twitter and other social media companies were really working in in cahoots with the government to censor certain views during the pandemic. I think that's a real, that's a real issue. Imagine how much more power the, the, the overlords of these systems will have you know, if ChatGPT was sort of famously programmed to be kind of woke, to not, it would, it would answer certain questions, not other questions. It would, uh, it would try to steer people away from, from, from questions that, that it can, you know, that somebody considered impolite or improper. Well, that's a lot of, imagine that and multiply that power a thousand fold over people's ideas. That's one set of risks. There's a related risk. I've, I've done a lot of research into disasters. And as I was saying with the Pepsi thing, a lot of times disasters come from fairly trivial things. The more you empower a system to work really well most of the time, the bigger the disaster can be if something goes wrong. Oh, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I can see. I, I see exactly what you mean. I hadn't thought of it in those terms. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you know, if you if you have if your power grid is just a few blocks and one diesel generator, not that much can go wrong. If your power grid connects uh, 30 states, you can have a blackout that, that, you know, that blacks out half the country. So now combine the social issue and the, and the, the massive system failure, failure problem. Imagine a chat GPT type of program that was optimized to create 
crazy QAnon type conspiracy theories and constantly test the responses of users to see which ones really get them going, you know, to see which ones they really respond to and share. TikTok kind of already works like that. YouTube works like that a little bit. So we're already seeing signs of this. Zainab Tefechi has done some interesting work, you know, analyzing the way social media exaggerates and amplifies certain, um, you know, creepy ideas. But imagine that whole thing on steroids. Yeah. Can you imagine it driving antagonistic social movements kind of over the edge or making a lot of these current trends worse? I can I can imagine that. And and I and and I can also imagine a situation where, you know, some people set it in motion, but then can't really control it. And so this is and, you know, I can also imagine a system where we have we're so dependent on AI that you can't just do what they did in 2001 and say, just pull the plug, you know, just pull the plug on the computer. At a certain point, that's not you know, we couldn't pull the plug on the Internet, uh, the you know, banking, everything our society would shut down. Uh, so. So, you know, is, are we running a risk of some very large scale type of social disaster, other disaster? I think we need to take that seriously. And I don't have any solutions to it, but, but my kind of free market optimism that all technological change leads to a more productive, happier, healthier society. I do think that generally, but I think that we also have risks we have to take seriously here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny how, so like we were talking about the environmental climate change stuff, the people who are most vested in the need to cut carbon emissions are the ones most opposed to nuclear power. The people who, it seems to me, are a little bit of an exaggeration because there's definitely a lot of this on the right these days too, but there's a whole swath of the left that wants, you know, a two-day work week, right? You know, who wants to sort of, uh, get to this r- Marxist Rousseauian notion that you can just sort of have a bespoke lifestyle um, because the economy is kind of on autopilot and generates enough prosperity for everybody to be to be happy. And it seems to me inconceivable that you get there if you don't. If you, the George Jetson economy, where you go to work and you press a button and then you hang out and then you come home, is impossible without AI infusion and a few of these kinds of things. And it seems like the people who most want this, you know, subsidized, you know, we live at the end of history, prosperous, you know, you can say it's the end of history, you can say it's the world of the last man, whatever, but this world where everything is sort of provided because the economy is on autopilot, they're the ones most opposed to it or among the ones most opposed to it. And it's just, it's, it's a weird disconnect between the wanting the ends and the means. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that kind of Rousseauian fantasy of this natural life. What what was it that Marx said, you know, in the future, you'll go fishing in the morning and farming in the afternoon, then read books or write, you know, this there's there's a strong strain of romanticism that runs through a lot of left wing thinking. You, You really see it in the climate movement. You see it in the movement that the so-called degrowth movement. Let's all just go back to living in villages with community gardens and and this more agrarian lifestyle that's closer to nature and that anything high tech is is suspect. I think that this is a really, I mean, I can understand the appeal of it. It's a really seductive, seductive worldview. And I, I think that we're gonna that that worldview has a political impact that leads to things like I think fear of nuclear power is tied to that, I think. And I think that we may see a certain fear or backlash of, of AI and, and, you know, these kinds of advanced systems that stems from that sort of worldview. Uh, And I, I, you know, these are not practical minded people. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've been reading up a lot recently on the whole environmental justice movement. And what's striking is their idea for how a, a poor community should develop is so Rousseauian, you know, uh, no nuclear power plants, no, no power lines, no pipelines, but let's have community gardens and, and, and locally controlled agriculture. It's, uh, you know, I don't think they consulted the people in the South Bronx about this, but, 
But this Rousseauian sense is uh, is always there in our politics, and it's very, very tempting. And I think it's uh, it it is something that that it's really worth being aware of because it is so seductive and so easy to get to to get caught up in these fantasies. And then the policies that come from them are are wildly impractical. Right. I mean, like my point is, like if you want to live in the diamond age, you know, the the book, or if you want to live in the holodeck. Right. Or if you want to live in. And I, I'm not saying we should want to do these things, but, you know, if you want to live in the virtual reality where it's actually tactile and you can't really tell that you're in the metaverse and all that kind of thing, um, community gardens ain't going to get you there. <laughs> you know, you're going to need um, you're going to need some honking, serious, advanced technology to do it. And. um and that's why I have a lot more sympathy. I've always had a lot more sympathy for techno Marxism than for the sort of Rousseauian Marxism that is so dominant where, you know, and, and again, it is now just to be clear, it's a bipartisan thing. Um, there are, there's a, there's a whole cottage industry intellectually on the right that says we were all happier and better off when we were serfs, um, which, uh, as the descendant of serfs is just, you know, <laughs> not, 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 not true. <laughs> um, and, uh, but anyway, I, I want to get one last question in and how this all relates to it. I probably should have done it before this because it, your point about, um, the people running the, the, the choke points on the decision-making process on things like AI and all the rest, I think is a very good one. And it sort of ties into something you wrote about for commentary a while back on elite panic. And so why don't you explain what elite panic is and why? Um, you think it matters? Yeah, a couple of years ago, early in the pandemic, actually, uh, I wrote a review of a book called This is Chance. And it was a, a, a portrait of the Alaska earthquake in 1964. And something jumped out at me in the book uh, when the city of Anchorage was wrecked uh, on this chilly March day. The police, their biggest concern was looting. They thought, you know, the, the whole city had fallen apart. And but they thought that mobs were going to come downtown and all the store windows were broken. They were going to start looting the stores. So they got all these people and they put armbands on them and they even gave some of them guns and sent them out in the streets to patrol the streets to prevent looting. And. This was something this is a common view among authorities. Anytime there is a disaster is that the public can't be trusted. They're going to run wild in the streets. Do you remember after Katrina, you know, there was all the there was all this talk about uh, gangs roaming the streets, shooting at rescue helicopters and stuff. It was all made up. It was none of it was true. And and yet it really stymied a lot of rescue efforts. We see some of this in the response to the pandemic early on. There was so much fear that people would first there was fear that they would all go on some kind of, you know, racist uh mob attacks on Chinatown or something. So we had to reassure them that Chinatown was safe. And then, you know, there was the the idea that no one would behave properly, or that everyone would use up all the masks. So Fauci told us not to wear masks because we needed to, he didn't say we need to give them healthcare workers. He just said they didn't work. There was a whole series of deceptions, spinning the information, uh, some cases, you know, outright censorship to try to enforce the the uh, public health consensus. But that consensus was premature. And the the idea that the public was, you know, going to be dangerous and misbehave to me was an example of this elite panic phenomenon. And in fact, usually what happens in disasters and what happened in Alaska is the, the people got organized and went out and searched buildings and rescued people. <laughs> and and rebuilt the city or, you know, you know, began really serious uh, efforts to salvage what they could almost immediately with very little supervision from the government. That's actually the norm when people confront disasters. And I think our our uh, the tendency of people in positions of authority to think the worst of us when things go bad is itself something that compounds some of these disasters. Yeah, I mean, I remember reading that piece and thinking about it because. I spent a lot of time thinking about post-apocalyptic stuff, probably too much time. And, uh, it changed my thinking on it a little bit. I do think that the, the concern is not what 
it, the concern should not be what happens immediately after a disaster, but what happens if you cannot restore order after a considerable period of time, right? I think that the veneer of civilization holds on for a while, but when, when it becomes clear that you're on your own for the foreseeable future, I think then things can get a little iffier, but, um, um, anyway, I think it's a, it's, it's, it's something I would like to explore more, but as I was saying before we sat down, I actually have to go to a board meeting for the dispatch in four minutes. So alas, <laughs> I gotta go. We'll put a bunch of stuff in the show notes, but they can just go to the Manhattan Institute website and look at, at, at Jim's authorist page and find all this stuff. And of course, as much as it pains me to say this, uh, you should always go to the commentary um, website and or, mag or subscribe to Commentary Magazine to see the stuff because uh, Jim is the, uh, um, the, the tech columnist for uh, commentary. And um, I feel a little bit like Santa Claus sending everybody over to Gimbel's and Miracle on 34th Street, but here we are. So, uh, Jim Meggs, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, I'd love to, John. It's great talking with you. Okay, so uh, not only has uh, Jim Meggs left the studio, so did I. In fact, I went and did a board meeting, and then I wrote a whole Wednesday G-File, and um, made some real progress in Star Trek Fleet Command, and watched a little bit of uh, Equalizer Part 2 which uh, I sometimes have on in the background while I'm doing other stuff. So it's been a full day. Um, regardless, it was great to have uh, James Meggs on. Hope to have him back. I had all sorts of scintillating conversation wrapping insights that I wanted to get to um, when I finished uh, earlier, but I can't remember what they are at this point. So they're going to be much like episode 11, Lost to History. Um, but thanks again for listening. Uh, there will be a solo this weekend. And um, beyond that, uh, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>